Welcome to Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This series is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. We work very hard on our website, so go pay us a visit at artuk.org. Also, I love to hear your thoughts and ideas on episodes, so talk to us on your favorite social media channel at artuk.org, spelling out the word dot, and be sure to use hashtag artmatterspodcast as well. I'm willing to bet that you've probably had a moment where you were standing in a gallery and someone walked up to a painting and proclaimed, I could do that, before walking off unimpressed. Maybe you've even said this a time or two yourself. In 1950, Dan Robbins had an idea that would make that statement a reality for millions of hobbyists. I grew up in suburban uh, Washington, D.C., out in the suburbs of Maryland, and paint by number was uh, kind of like the decorative condition of my childhood neighborhood. That's William Larry Bird Jr., former curator at the National Museum of American History, Smithsonian Institution. He curated an exhibition and wrote a book about paint-by-number paintings. I was born in 1951, um, you know, on the ground floor of the baby boomers almost. And I can remember uh, seeing one being done. It was maybe halfway completed in a friend's basement. And I couldn't get through my head like how you could get something that was that colorful and interesting to look at from blue line art that just fried my brain (laughs) to look at. And so I always liked the finished pictures, but the process itself, I just, it just kind of, you know, who would do that, you know? (laughs) By proxy, Dan Robbins' paintings made their way into houses all over the world, vicariously making him a highly prolific artist during the 1950s. But how did this start? How did this idea turn into an industry that would generate $80 million in annual revenue at its peak? Well, the paint company that Klein bought after World War II uh, was a kind of a mass manufacturer of uh, tempera paint uh, that they sold to school districts and they packaged it in, you know, large quantities, you know, for consumption by schools. And he realized that they could make more money if they packaged it, you know, for consumers in smaller packages and you would just simply you know, expand the market for paint. And he was a a graduate chemist, so he could easily switch from tempera to oil. And Robbins was hired as a package designer for this, you know, they had like a set of figurines or or something. And uh, Robbins came from a vocational art uh, background, and he remembered uh, a story that he had heard that Leonardo had... Uh, farmed out portions of frescoes and, uh, you know, things to his students. And he would just simply give them, you know, instructions. This is this portion here is this number and this portion is this number and, you know, this kind of thing. And so he went to Klein and he said, you know, I, we could sell, you know, not just figurine sets, but we could make, uh, you know, paint by number canvases, kits and sell them. And Klein was, you know, Dan, you know, just show me what you're talking about. Make something, show me. And so Robbins went away and, you know, thinking of Leonardo, tried to think, well, what would uh, an American consumer today want to paint? What would it be? And so 
what he thought that would be was a, a kind of a small abstract expression of still life, you know, of fruit yeah. and bowl. And to me, that's popular I, at the time. Yeah. And so he, he prepared it and he showed it to Klein and Klein said, you know, I hate it. I like the concept, you know, but I hate the subject. And so Robbins came back with a couple of, you know, what we call narrative, you know, seascapes, landscapes. Uh, often they included figures of people, you know, this sort of thing. And so that's what they launched the, the kit line with. So with the designs of the paintings, I think it's easy to take for granted that someone with really good art knowledge and skill had to first put these paintings together. You have to have a good understanding of like color theory and yeah. um, composition. And all. was it Dan who was doing a lot of it or was it a team or? Well, at, at first it was just Dan and he, his first artist as a hire was a man named Adam Grant who was a, uh, a Polish Catholic uh, war refugee who was working on the assembly line at Ford, you know, and oh, he, wow. he answered an ad in the paper that Dan had put in. And then they began also hiring people who were, you know, inkers to just draw the outlines. It was a very, you know, specialized and uh, assembly line driven, uh, fittingly enough, process because they're in Detroit. So you had to have a pretty firm grasp. I mean, the, the art of it is the person who is, is doing that and making those uh, judgments and those value decisions yeah. that, that, uh, that enables anybody to pick up a brush and, you know, just complete it without fail. Designs ranged from simplified reproductions of famous artworks like The Last Supper to still lives, landscapes, and portraits. The limited color count included in the kits created a degree of puzzle work for the designers. While they could make any color needed for a work, they were fundamentally restricted in the number of colors they could use. You'd see the palette that they were working with. And, and by that mean, I, I mean the uh, color color the range of colors yeah. that were that were hand done by an artist once you had the palette like a 12 color palette a 24 color palette whatever that was you had to sort of stick with that and make all of that work within the same uh model yeah you know? true i never really thought about that yeah Launching the kits was the first challenge for Klein and Robbins. They took the kits to the 1951 New York Toy Fair, and Klein had a cheeky plan. There still is uh, an annual Toy Fair exhibit uh, where manufacturers preview for buyers uh, their, their coming you know, attractions usually for the Christmas season. They're taking orders you know, well in advance of Christmas and you know, this kind of thing. And so this was maybe in the early 1950s, Klein uh, and Robbins filled, you know, Klein's Cadillac with paint by number kits. And they took them to the toy fair and they set up shop in a, you know, in like a hotel room uh, for all the, the, the toy reps to come back, to come around. And while they were there, they, they uh, put some, they got through some contacts at Macy's. They put some on the floor at Macy's for people. And of course, uh, they had a, a problem of how you, you know, show this. And, and they, they eventually came down to they had to employ somebody to actually be engaged in the process of painting it. You know, it wasn't mm -hmm. enough to show the finished canvas. I mean, what's that, you know? <laughs> yeah, true. So they had to show the process. But anyway, long story short, 
uh, they flew out of the store and, and uh, Robbins who witnessed this was never quite sure if they had left the shelves by themselves or, or if Klein had gone with a little walking around money, you know, yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Paid, and paid, you know, his friends or somebody, you know, to, to, to take, take this away to impress Macy's. But wh- however, it, whatever happened, it worked. <laughs> and so people, you know, began, you know, stocking stores with paint by number. Five and dime stores, Woolworths, and big department stores across the U.S. began to carry the kits, and the demand grew. As they became more and more popular, and people, you know, started to write in, and you know, anybody who painted one, you know, fell in love with it apparently, and then, but they were heavily dependent upon the company, you know, for more subjects. <laughs> it yeah, isn't. I heard that people became it, quite addicted. Yeah, it isn't as if they're. Yeah, right. They did. And so they got so busy that they introduced into the line Robin's original composition, which was called Abstract Number One. And somebody painted that as a kit and they submitted it to a San Francisco amateur art contest where it won, I think, second prize. Amazing. <laughs> and the judges, the judges were so mortified that they, they just refused to talk about it. <laughs> and wow. to me, and to me, that's where, that's really where the, the story of paint by number as a cultural phenomenon begins. As the business grew, the Palmer Paint Company developed levels to the kits with varying color counts and themes. They developed a tailored, systematic approach that may have been inspired by some of their neighboring businesses in Detroit. The palettes went up to, you know, 96 colors. The super craftmaster size, you know, is 96. It's a palette of 96 colors. And I think they made they made four compositions that were like this. But the, the business of how they merchandise these, uh, there was a, a hierarchy. You know, there was uh, the one for Junior, the one for his older sister, the one for mom, and then the one for dad. Kind of like the way that General Motors merchandised their cars for every purse and purpose. Though it was a simple and innocent activity, it resonated with a wide audience. Was it a case of the right idea at the right time? To me, that's still a mystery because I, I mean, and I'm not being critical or prejudicial, but to me, it's kind of like uh, uh, completing completing a puzzle. Uh, well, I mean, there are larger, you know, reasons too, and historians, you know, like me, always try to pull back and look at everything. You know, you have a a lot of people with new homes in, in in suburbia. You have a lot of walls to decorate, you know, <laughs> and is it really that bad that you that you put something that you have completed yourself on the wall? I don't I don't think so. For as many people that loved the pastime, there were some that found it silly and criticized the idea of there being more paint by number paintings than original artworks in homes. I guess I don't understand what all of the complaint was about. The larger, you know, complaint of what what happened to it and how it was kind of uh, disparaged as a uh, as a pastime for people who had leisure for the first time <laughs> and who had homes and who and who had homes to decorate. There was a perception that maybe it was bored housewives that completed the kits, which possibly contributed to some of the critique of its value at the time. Through doing his research, William gained insight into the impact of the art craze. 
and, and this is one of the, uh, the, the problems I have in putting, you know, out a, a product and a, a, like a book about this and an exhibit and writing about it. It's only after you do those things that you really learn about it. You know, we put up, <laughs> a, we put up a museum website, which is still out there, although it's long past collecting reminiscences about paint by number, but people wrote in these most poignant stories about their parents doing these things. And it's men and women across the board. It's not just, not just housewives. I mean, there are people who happen to be housewives who are doing them, but um, it was really quite uh, universal. And it was the kind of information that I wish I could have somehow mined and folded back into the project to make it a much richer kind of endeavor or people who wrote in about their first experience with paint by number and they became artists, you know, because, because of this, I mean, it put, it sort of democratized access to the apparatus of art for people who otherwise would have had no means of, of realizing it. This wasn't a movement that was contained to the suburbs. Artists were taking notice, and references to the kits began to infiltrate popular culture. There's even an image you can find of a paint-by-number portrait of President Johnson by Richard Hess that was intended for a June 1967 cover of Esquire magazine. Yeah, if you go looking for that, you'll never find it. It actually never appeared <laughs> on the cover of Esquire magazine. Oh, really? What happened was the... The, uh, the art director of Esquire was a man named Sam Antiput, and he commissioned uh, contemporary artists and illustrators to paint a portrait of Linda Johnson, President Johnson, who was having trouble finding someone to paint his official presidential portrait. <laughs> he had already fired somebody, you know. And so he commissioned Dick Hess who used to work at Palmer Paint Company for Dan Robbins. Uh, And so Hess had created this, uh, like a spaniel, a cocker spaniel (laughs) in it. And the the portrait, the way it's set up, really closely resembles what he did with Hillington Johnson. And so this issue of Esquire comes out with all of these, they're not all paint by number, of course, but, you know, Hess's was going to be in it uh, as an article, an illustrated article. And mm-hmm. at the last minute, they pulled the cover image, which was the Dick Hess LBJ. It had to be given away to somebody, I think, who had written an article about Jacqueline Kennedy, who had this arrangement with the editorship that uh, when his article was published, he would get the cover. You know, so they so they pulled the they pulled the paint by number Johnson cover. But it later it later won all kinds of awards because it was you know published in Art Director's Annual and all of these other you know things. And it became the most famous, you know, magazine cover that never ran. Warhol also experimented with the technique in his do-it-yourself series. What he did was he he went out uh, one day and he found a, uh, it's like a pencil-by-number set. In other words, you would color in by colored, using colored pencils, these things. Mm-hmm. And he, he took one of the uh, line art pieces and he would put them under his opaque projector and project the lines onto a canvas. And he would take the flat of his pencil and make the pencil outline of the thing. Uh, right. Okay. And then he would fill selectively fill in colors, you know, to make the composition and leaving some blank and some not. And then he would put press type numbers over them. 
at the end. Yes, I noticed that the numbers are on top of his. Yeah. So it's to and, really make it clear that these yeah. this is a by the numbers series. Yeah. Yeah. So and these canvases are rather large and they all seem to be owned overseas. I mean, they're in Germany, they're I mean everywhere but the United States. They do come back on loan from time to time and you you can you can catch one here and there. But I think again that that points out to the kind of the scandalous choice of subject matter that he was going for at the time to the point where, you know, was people don't even want to look at it. I don't, I don't care what, I don't want that you know, over here. But at the same time that he's doing that, he's experimenting with other uh, kinds of mechanically reproduced images. And the next thing he moves on to pretty quickly are the silk screens of the Campbell soup can. Like all good things, Paint by Numbers had its moment and came to an end. Perhaps the growing popularity of television had something to do with its decline. Or maybe it was the inevitable backlash that many pop culture movements face once they become too popular. Still, during their heyday, the kits were far-reaching. These things were given out to uh, cabinet members in the Eisenhower administration and uh, who were under the impression that the president was asking them to paint them. And they would come back completed and the president's... Uh, press secretary, you know, not press secretary, one of his aides hung them up in the reception room in the White House. So when you came into the White House, you saw this collection of paint by number paintings. (laughs) And you also saw some original art, but mostly it was paint by number or the president's amateur paintings. After hanging on the walls of the White House, the paintings would hang on the walls of the Smithsonian Institution for the Paint by Number, Accounting for Taste in the 1950s exhibition at the National Museum of American History. William coordinated the 2001 exhibition, including completed paintings and a loan of one of Warhol's do-it-yourself paintings. William joked to me that of all the items in the exhibition, the Warhol was the only work to have an alarm on it. So how did the exhibition come about 50 years after the height of the craze? Many, 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 many years later, I was combing through the Sunday flea market and you would see these things starting to be sold and discovered. And there was always some question as to what it was. You know, some people knew, of course, know what what it is and they probably wouldn't pay very much for it. But other people, if they didn't know, you know, you think it's and, a work of fine art, <laughs> right? Well, they're, and they're always so wonderfully framed, yeah. You know, which when you find them, which attests to the place that it enjoyed in the life of its owner, its previous owner. Yeah. And so, I was talking to a friend of mine in the museum one day, and I said, "You know, our staff art show is coming up, but I don't paint these things. I'd like to show one." And he said, "Well, Larry, why don't you?" make a small exhibit and call it your art. <laughs> so so I went out and I researched it and uh, Carol Ann Marling, the great art historian, she uh, had written a book about painting in the 50s and the amateur painters, Churchill and Eisenhower, and uh, and talked about paint by number and, and Dan Robbins and Max Klein and the Palmer Paint Company in Detroit. So I wrote this little, you know, label up and I put it between two birch tree landscapes that I had found in these little white Rococo frames. And I hung it on the wall in our staff art show. And that was it. That was it. But that wasn't it. In the space of a month that the thing was up, 
I get this call one day from one of the archivists in the museum, and she says, uh, there's this woman that called and said she's Max Klein's daughter, and there's this collection that her father left <laughs> of paint by number, and, and would you go look at it? And I'm like, oh, well, I guess I, guess. <laughs> I, guess I should go look at this now. And yeah. so the next thing I know, I'm in the Brooklyn apartment of Jacqueline Schiffman, Max Klein's daughter, the late Max Klein, who passed away in 1995 and he left a trove of company material, trade literature, photos, any test paintings, anything that you might have wanted to save should you want to restart the company again. And so it was like a, you know, like a mid 50s, mid 1950s time capsule yeah. of this company and the trade literature went, you know, pretty all around the world, which was kind of surprising to me. I had no idea. I mean, I knew they went up into Canada and they had, there was English trade literature, Norway, France, you know, I mean, just shocking. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Who knew? And so I, I looked at that and I thought, wow, well, you have to do a show now. <laughs> you have to do a real show now. It's time to do this. Did she have completed paintings as well or just the... the yes, kind of- they had okay. what they called test paintings. I mean, once they they put in a credi- an incredible amount of care into, uh, you know, making this pretty foolproof, <laughs> you know, so, and that included taking it all the way out to the consumer end by, you know, testing them. Speaking of testing the kids, I asked if William enjoyed doing one from time to time. I have never done one. I still haven't done one. <laughs> no, that's not what? true. That's, that's not a true. requirement. That's not true. I did do one. No, the first time that I did one, I was up in a like a bucket lift, and we made a a banner for the exhibit that went up as a piece of blue line art. Mm-hmm. I painted in, you know, like a piece of the sky or the lighthouse or something. Yeah. And then later my publisher uh, put out a couple of, uh, you know, reproduction kinds of kits. And I, I painted one just to see if I could, if I could do it. And uh, the lines were pretty small. I, I think I could have done it with a pencil. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I had so much fun putting this episode together and I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of this amazing retro pastime. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of the paintings, I'll link to images and resources on the article for this episode on the Art UK website. Speaking of which, did you know that Art UK is a charity? If you'd like to support the work we're doing, why not pick up an Art Matters tote bag or mug? Head over to artuk.org shop and find Art Matters goodies and more. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Be sure to join us again next time.